Grace, mercy, and peace be yours from God, our Father, and from our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Today's text is the Gospel reading, the account of Christ at Capernaum, and the healing and the casting out of unclean spirits that he there did with his word. Especially we consider this phrase, and they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? So far our text, dear friends in Christ Jesus. It may be hard for you to believe that it's been more than 50 years now since Cecil B. DeMille released that epic classic, The Ten Commandments, starring, of course, Charlton Heston as Moses and Yul Brynner as the stern and the dramatic pharaoh in the film so-called Ramses II. And though the main actors are all gone now, still, year after year, the, the film lives on through television sets all over the world at different times of the year. It's proven, this film, because it's memorable, it's proven to have staying power. And I think you'd be hard-pressed to say that there aren't memorable things about the film, and you know so many of these, the parting of the Red Sea, a sea you yourself probably have been through if you've been to the back lots of Universal Studios, where the sea was first parted there, the parting of the Red Sea or the creeping green foggy angel of death, the Nile River, remember, running technicolor red, the mass scale exodus of hundreds, even thousands of those actors, uh, Israelites through the obelisks in Egypt on their way out into the desert. In fact, the, the production crew, the film notes say, in its entirety is 80,000 individuals on this film. Memorable things, all of these things about this film, reasons why it won some Academy Awards. In my mind, there's a memorable line spoken that still rings on. It was a sentence decreed by the Pharaoh, Yul Brynner. It was a phrase uttered at least once in the film, maybe more times than that. A phrase uttered to codify as law a decision that he had just announced. Maybe you remember it. So let it be written, he said. So let it be done. So let it be written. So let it be done. That's authority. That's authority. It's authority when like a seamless garment, what's said seamlessly translates into what's done. It might be hard for you and for me to identify with that kind of authority, that word of authority, frankly, very, very few in this world possess such an authority. Jesus does. It's evident, certainly from the text, it's evident in what he says and what happens, because what he says is. His let there be seamlessly becomes and there was. With a word he muzzled demonic spirits, and I use that word particularly because literally that's what the Greek word is, that he muzzled spirits, the unclean spirits. It's the same word, as I recall, that's used in, in, in another gospel account where Jesus is rebuking the wind and the waves. Literally, he muzzled them. He muzzled it. He said, be muzzled with his word. Jesus muzzled demonic spirits in our text, directing, directing them to do what no other man's voice or word or might ever could. He rebuked a fever, unruly health, and it, like wind and wave, knew his voice and obeyed him. It is astonishing, astounding to to hear 
that word of authority, especially because it can be hard for you and for me, for us, to identify with that degree of authority. You may wield the word of authority as an executive officer in your firm, perhaps, a shift manager, parent, teacher, coach, captain of a squad of some sort. You well may wield authority, but no doubt your so let it be written isn't always done, is it? Executive, the words of the executive isn't always executed as it should be. Children and students, they don't always obey as they ought. Even presidents can lose persuasion, and dictators who might rule with an iron fist and with an iron word, even those can be upended by a coup. And even when authoritative words do in this world have staying power, they're not always used for good. Often the word of authority is misused, it's abused. Perhaps you've seen that firsthand, perhaps you've been there, perhaps you know. Perhaps you know well. Fathers or mothers fed up with the nightly noise of their their children, employ their God-given authority and yet in unreasonable ways. Perhaps you've been there. Maybe you know it was wrong. Corporate officials, other high-ranking officers in some other strata of, of a hierarchy somewhere, use their influence to get by threat what doesn't rightly belong to them, what shouldn't be theirs. Maybe you've been there. On one side of that coin or another, maybe you've been there. Maybe you've seen it. It's wrong. Those who've been given authority from above, misusing it and abusing it as if it were their own. And as if, 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 it, as if it weren't on loan to them from him to whom all authority in heaven and on earth belongs. Maybe you've been there, maybe you've seen it. And for that reason, maybe it's hard to identify with this kind of authority, this word of authority. Whether Jesus, whether Jesus is speaking to the fever of a sickly mother-in-law or to the planetary bodies in their orbit, his word is his word. Fevers or solar flares, they obey him. And the text, I think, is plain enough about that. But what's more than the authority he has, consider how he uses the authority that he has. How does he use it to unlock sin's hold on a race of creatures that he so dearly pities? He uses it for your good, for mine. And I say unlock sin's hold because whether we're talking of an unclean spirit or or a fever, or an infirmity, all of those things we saw listed in our text. It really makes no difference. Why? Because each is of the same ilk, isn't it? Each one is fallout of the fall into sin. And each one has a hold on natural you and on natural me. In speaking of Jesus unlocking Sin's hold, I'm reminded of the cover art of, of one of the issues of Good News magazine, a magazine with which many of you are familiar, certainly perhaps because of the soundness of the theological articles. It's, it's one of those in the narthex, but also because of the beautiful Christian artwork that's showcased on the covers and, and throughout the issues, the pages of the, of the magazines. The Good News magazine, I'm reminded as we talk of Jesus unlocking with his word sin's power, the cover art of issue 28. It stands out a bit. It's a painting by 19th century artist James Tussaud. 
And it depicts the resurrected Christ standing in the midst of his apostles, some to his right, some to his, his left. And from his mouth proceeds, whether they be words or, or his breath as he breathes, breathes out upon them, proceeds words or breath in the shape of keys. It's a striking image. But it's a good image to think on today when considering Christ in our text because that's exactly with his word what he's doing, isn't it? With a word he's unlocking, he's releasing what's been, what's been gripped by sin. Now you can identify with that. Most certainly you can identify with that. You can identify with it because in one way or another you know sin's grip. In your life, just like they at Capernaum knew it well in their lives. We can identify with that because every one of us can identify somewhere in the text with someone in the text. Who would you be, do you think? Who might you be? Maybe not demon-possessed, but perhaps you've willingly squandered your baptismal freedom from sin's domineering grip by willingly then giving yourself over into perhaps a particular sin that's now caught you in it and has to a degree possessed you in it or would you be one of those we might call the sundown society one of those recall who flocked to him the first chance they had as soon as the sun set on that sabbath day flocked to him after sundown to see if he could speak away for them or or reach out to them and, and touch away the change and the decay in their life in your life change and and the decay in your life and your health that in a fallen world you know all too intimately well. Maybe it's a disease. Maybe it's a disease, one that's come to or at least that threatens to define your life. Maybe one that's open for all to see. Maybe though one that, that only is known to you and to Christ. Or maybe you'd come to him with with the infirmity of age that aches and pains you from sun up to sun down. No doubt you can identify with them. You can identify with being in sin's grip in one way or another. And we'd love to be there, wouldn't we? At Capernaum's clinic on that Sunday, we'd love to be there. For his word to unlock sin's grip on us in those, in those instantaneous and, and, and miraculous ways that his word did for them. Don't expect that though. He's not promised that to you. That it would be healing by instantaneous and miraculous ways. Don't expect it. At least don't expect it with the same instantaneousness and, and, and flair. Don't expect that, but neither doubt that his word is still his word. Because, friends, where he joins his healing word and will to, to the medicines that he invests with healing properties, with silent speech, is it not he who still speaks us well? When he permits the, the reaches of, of human medical knowledge to encroach just a little more onto the, the shores of his infinite knowledge, so that it might be used to accomplish over time perhaps what he did in an instant there at Capernaum, he's still the one reaching out 
through the, through the medicines and the medical knowledge and the, and the practitioners and surgeons and the specialists, still the one reaching out to touch with his healing touch those that he would heal. He still speaks us well when, when he knows that being well is in our eternal best interests. So mind you, just because he once rebuked a fever and some diseases at Capernaum and then, and then walked away onto other things doesn't mean that he stopped caring about you and your diseases and, and your fevers and infirmities. Where and in whom he wills, he still, does he not? He still reorders sin's chaos with his word, so let it be done. Remember this, though, about the, the crowd at Capernaum. As much as we certainly would have loved to have been there and seen it and been a part of it. Remember, though, each of those that Jesus spoke out to and healed, or reached out to and healed, each of those at Capernaum would fall ill again in health. Would they not, each one would die? Each one, one day, would have its family gathered around at its burial. Jesus didn't come so that each day would be a miraculous Capernaum. In fact, recall this, that even in the text, recall that even after he had healed many and sought for himself some seclusion, the text might indicate that he hadn't even slept all that night, healing each and every individual one. He sought some seclusion, but yet they went out and they found him and they said, Jesus, heal us more. But what did he say? No. No, he didn't do it, did he? Why? Because he said to them, I must, with, with divine necessity, it's a Greek word that means absolutely necessary, I must preach the good news to the kingdom of God to other towns. I must go preach the kingdom to others. As well, for I was commissioned, he says, for this purpose. No doubt there is a day in store for you. When the trumpet will sound and sin's last grip that holds your body in the grave, it will be loosed forever. That day death will hear the voice of the Holy One of God calling you from your body's sleep, and it will and it must, death must bow to his authority and the authority of his word. And it will, death will and it must let you go. And all of those former things then will have passed away. But note it well, that day never, will have, never would have come for you, never would have been in store for you if the Christ of Capernaum didn't necessarily press on to be the Christ of Calvary. Only by way of his suffering and his death upon the cross, by which he bore our sins and our griefs, he carried our sicknesses, Isaiah says literally, and our sorrows, where he wore the iniquity of us all, all of the, the wrongs that we have committed and the things that we've left undone as we've misused perhaps authority that we had been given and entrusted with, perhaps not in obeying the word of authority we should have. All of our wrongs he wore on the cross, Isaiah says, and only by it does he give us life and not life that's going to last for a day. 
or even a season, or that's contained to some particular locale in the Palestinian hillside. But as Christ himself said, I've come to give you life so that you may have life and have it abundantly and to the full, that kind of life. Only by it does, does God put away, by, his, by, by Christ's suffering and death, only by it does God put away the guilt of your sin and put it away for all time. And like the infirmed at Capernaum, those who want that forgiving release from sin's guilt, you too come to him just like they came to him. That's, that's how he worked at Capernaum. It's how he works in Cupertino too, personally, individually. Didn't the text say he healed each and every one of them? It wasn't a mass healing that day, was it? Each and every one he treated. They came to where he was, you too. Come to where he's promised to be, to treat you, to, to heal you here. Where his word and his sacrament are, are spoken and administered to you like, like medicine. And if because of infirmity, like Peter's mother-in-law, you can't be here, you know well that just as the text indicates, Jesus too makes house calls. As his word and his sacrament are brought to where you need to be so that he can visit you and treat you where you are with what you need. It's here where by his authority your sins are put away. It's here where Jesus' saving blood is applied personally and individually to you. It's where you here where you, you hear heaven's authority pass, heaven's authoritative pardon on you. And that's precisely and exactly what Christ has here arranged for his people, is it not? When we think of authority and words of authority, perhaps there is no higher example that we know among men at least than the judge's word of authority, the courtroom setting. In fact, this here is very much that courtroom setting. We come here as the defendants, do we not? The evidence might be stacked against us. Exhibits A through Z plainly tell you that if you say you have no sin, you're only fooling yourself. It would be an open and shut case. We don't deny it. How do you plead? We know we're guilty. We confess what we are, what we've been, what we've done and left undone. We confess what we deserve. Present and eternal punishment. But for the sake of Christ's suffering and death, we beg the judge's mercy a word of pardon. And then, through a spokesman the judge himself has called and who speaks in the stead and by the authoritative word, command of the Lord Christ himself. Heaven's highest authority, heaven's judge, there through his spokesman says to you, I've long ago commuted your death sentence Onto my own son. I've punished, I've punished him in your place. The penalty has been paid, and so I hereby declare you, the defendant, not guilty. So let it be written. So let it be done. Scripture says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. His word. Scripture says it is God who judges who then is to condemn. It is God who is the judge. It's God who passes the sentence. 
Who then is to second guess him? Not I. Certainly not you. So what he's forgiven, you forgive yourself. You forgive in others what he himself has forgiven. And that's what happens here. Christ's word releasing, pardoning, forgiving you from sin's guilt, sin's hold on you. So you can go from this place today on this particular Sunday, just like those many who departed from him at, at Capernaum on that particular Sunday. Like them, you go because his word has released you too. In his blessed name, amen.